This episode of the Vincast is brought to you in part by Different Drop, an online wine retailer based in Sydney, focusing on Australian wines made with love, care and attention by some really up and coming, uh, a lot of the time, innovative and uh, sustainable grape growers and winemakers around the country. If you go to Different Drop, you'll find a huge selection of wines from a multitude of different varieties, uh, covering lots of different regions around Australia, uh, and you'll be able to find some wines that you can't really secure that easily uh, in the big chain retail stores. Many of the former guests of the podcast, uh, as well as I'm sure many future guests of the podcast, have their wines available through Different Drop. And it's a great way for you to kind of follow up your experience of listening to the podcast, hearing the stories of the guest, and then enjoying their wines. And it's a great way to support them and also to support the podcast. So if you go to differentdrop.com forward slash intrepidwino, you'll find a little secret section where you'll find um, some little packs from uh, some of the guests of the podcast. And if you make sure to pe- please use the uh, code intrepidwino at purchase, the guys at Different Drop will give you a bonus. And uh, and it's great to have the support of Different Drop guys. And thank you again for listening to this episode. episode 65 of the Vincast, I chat with Mario Marsan, one of the most respected viticulturalists in Victoria and the man behind Vinia Marsan Wines from Heathcote and beyond. We chat about his background, his experiences and uh, working at Mount Mary. Hello there, Vincasters, and welcome to another episode of the Vincast. My name is James Gersbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino, and it's great to have you on for another week, and I hope you enjoyed the special sort of double episode last week, uh, chatting with a couple of young up-and-coming winemakers, Uh, and, you know, as a bit of contrast for this week, I've got someone who has many, many years of experience in the Australian wine industry. But before we get on to this week's episode, I just want to let you know that um, I'm not sure if you've seen any of the Let's Taste videos that I've been posting on to YouTube, or indeed any of the Let's Taste Live episodes that I've had with a couple of former guests of the podcast. But uh, on 28th of September, I'm going to be hosting a Let's Taste Live of Australian Riesling. Uh, picked six Rieslings from around the country, um, all quite different expressions, but all dry styles. And so we're going to be tasting those live. And I've got um, a special guest in mind. I'm not going to confirm as yet because I need to get hear back from them, but uh, it's going to be fantastic. So make sure you go to uh, my YouTube channel, Intrepid Wino, uh, and you'll find the uh, the live event there. And you can set a reminder for yourself to join us at 6.30 p.m. But um, yeah, it's going to be lots of fun. You can actually buy the wines from Different Drop. Make sure you go to differentdrop.com forward slash Intrepid Wino and you'll get a six pack of those bottles. So uh, you and your friends or family, whoever, can actually open those bottles and taste along live and ask questions and maybe make some comments. So I hope to have you on board. 
So as I mentioned for this week, I've got Mario Marson on the podcast, who has worked in the Australian wine industry for many, many years, as well as uh, some vintages overseas and done a bit of traveling as well. So he came on to talk about his uh, his experiences uh, and his philosophies and how he expresses his wines in Vinia Marson. Hope you enjoy it and I'll see you on the other side. Mario, thank you very much for joining me here in the Vincast studio and uh, welcome. Thank you. Uh, I usually start every episode, as my listeners would know, asking my guests if they remember what their first interaction with wine was that actually sort of set them on the path of wanting to follow a, a career or more accurately, a life in wine. Oh, look, wine's always been part of uh, my life. Uh, I can remember as a, a small child that uh, wine was always served uh, with a meal. And, yes. And... Um, uh, even though it was served, uh, it was watered down. So uh, there's throw half a glass of water and it was topped up with wine. So okay. they're, they're my first recollections of uh, of wine. That sounds kind of Germanic, actually. Um, um, I mean, they, like they typically would do it with, uh, like a, I think, a sparkling water. But um, is it, where, where, where does that kind of tradition come from? Was oh, it just something you did that was done in your family? Look, uh, my parents came from northern Italy, and so wine's yeah. always been part of their uh, their culture, mm. so to speak. Uh, both my grandfathers uh, had um, vineyards. Uh, really? Yes. Whereabouts? Uh, in Friuli in northeastern Italy, mm-hmm. up in that top uh, northeastern corner, close to uh, Slovenia, or it was Yugoslavia then, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, but before that, it was yeah. Austro-Hungarian. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> and so even with uh, my surname being uh, Marson, uh, it's not a very Italian-sounding surname. And my mother's maiden name is Zaget, uh, which is even weirder, so mm-hmm. to speak. But uh, we've always had that culture of wine um, in uh, in our family, so to speak. Were you born in Australia? Yes, I was born in Australia. Whereabouts? Uh, uh, Melbourne. Okay. So, uh, but was it, so was was it your parents who migrated, and and would they have they met overseas and come together, or did they meet here? No, they were married overseas. Dad okay. came out in 1951, and Mum followed a, a year later mm-hmm. in 1952. Mm-hmm. And so, um, Dad, uh, I think some of his early work was in concreting. And, oh, classic uh, Italian. Yeah, exactly. And at the time, just before the, uh, it wasn't it wasn't concrete shoes, was it? And dropping in uh, Port Phillip Bay. <laughs> not that I know of. <laughs> it's possible. Uh, oh, who knows? <laughs> but um, no, Dad helped uh, did a lot of work out at the Olympic Village at uh, Heidelberg. Ah, oh, not far from where I grew up. Yeah, so there you go. So um, doing uh, doing concreting in, in the village, so to speak. And so as far as sort of watering down the wine, was that, you know, like when you were young, did you get the opportunity to, to try some wine as well? Oh, yes, I did. It was mainly all homemade wine. So okay. uh, Dad uh, Dad was always making his own wine uh, at that time of the year mm-hmm. in, in autumn. And so... In, in, in Damijana, was it? It was in Damijana's? Uh, yes. No, he got some old barrels. But oh, okay. One of my earliest recollections was that we used to get wine shipped over from Patriti in uh, McLaren Vale. Ah. And uh, we'd bottle up a, uh, a keg. It would have, uh, I don't think it was quite 225 litres, but it was a decent size. Yeah. So um, maybe a half barrique or something like that. And so it was all bottled up into 
clean beer bottles and then, you know, put a Stelvin beer, beer top on, on top of it. Yeah. So... Uh, just for just table wine type yes, stuff. Yes, yes. It was just for home. So classic concept. Italian. Oh, exactly. Sort of. And as far as the kind of food you had when you were growing up, was that quite classically Friulian? Well, yes. Um, some of my earliest recollections is once a year that um, a, a butcher would come around with a, a pig in four quarters and you, you'd spend the day. Uh, that was a day that you didn't have to go to school. So you, you made all the salami, the mm, sausages, the cotechino and, mm-hmm. and the rest of it. So um, that was always uh, a great day. Long mm. day, but, you know, fantastic. And uh, as far as sort of uh, education and then as a young adult, what kind of path were you heading down? Well, um, my path, you know, even though Dad had always made his wine, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And so um, uh, in my final years at school, I decided I liked uh, botany and, and that sort of area. Okay. And so um, I inquired about that um, at the universities and um uh, one of the other sub, uh, courses I saw was agricultural science, mm-hmm. and um, that's where uh, I always lo- enjoyed that. And so uh, I got into agriculture. I did agricultural science at Trobe University, and so was it the study of agriculture or being in nature that you kind of, or was it both? I was always uh, a bit of both, mm-hmm. and uh, look. Uh, half of you know I grew up in Bourbon, and mm. uh, half of dad's uh, backyard was converted to a veggie that's going to be my next question <laughs> so we grew all our own vegetables uh, yeah. as such and yeah. uh, and there was also vines that he planted in there and so that was part of uh, the fruit that he got to make his own wine but he always used to to buy uh, a lot of fruit in to, to help make it as well mm-hmm as far as the agricultural science um, course, where where was that? La Trobe University. Okay, and uh, and what was that like? Uh, look, that was good. It's very general course, and sure. uh, it introduces introduces you to uh, plant soil sciences, uh, animal husbandry, microbiology, and uh, the economic side of things, and also computing. So, okay, it's quite a broad based uh, sub uh, course. But at the same time, a fantastic base for future. Exactly, exactly. Okay. And see, in uh, in third year, we we're given the option of of selecting subjects that we might want to pursue in in fourth year mm-hmm. and so i uh, did a lot of research subjects in uh, viticulture and enology and i did my um my pro research project on uh, grapevine roots and oh, there so, you go. yeah which was uh brought me out into the Yarra valley and i did it what, what at, sort uh, of research did that entail i was trying to determine the actual time that root development or new root development occurred in relation to uh, bud burst. Ah, okay. So um, it meant a lot of destructive uh, root sampling and uh, and working back from there. But um, I uh, that's how I met um, Jeff Godden and also uh, Gilda Puri out at uh, Yeringberg. Right, so okay. I, uh, I used some of his vines to take some core samples and, and took the roots back and washed them and um, tried to work out when uh, the root primordia initiated in relation to bud burst. Mm. Where, roughly when was this? Um, it was, oh, it would have been 19, 1980. Okay. 
Yes, 1980. And, there was uh, a little bit, I mean, that obviously is well, you know, a little bit after the kind of rebirth of the Yarra Valley. Yes, yes. Um, but but there still wasn't huge investment oh, in the Yarra Valley yet. Exactly. Well, look, there were some passionate uh, people that had started working in the Yarra Valley. The Ferguson, or Pete Ferguson at Ferguson's, and then there was um, Mount Mary, uh, Yeringberg, um Dr. Peter McMahon at uh, Seville Estate mm-hmm. and St. Hubert's. They were some of the major ones. Bailey Caritas? Yes, you? sorry. Yes, I'd forgotten Bailey. <laughs> I'm just trying to remember all of them. Yeah. But, uh, it, uh, yes. But that, it was sort of part kind of hobby farm, part yes. sort of, you know, historic. I suppose the Dupuri family had been there for a long time and, you know, re-establishing, you know, the vineyard there. That's right. Well, it was in the, the late 60s that um, that, that occurred. And sure. Bailey Caritas was one of the first ones to do that. Mm. And uh, the other one I've forgotten about was Reg Egan at uh, One Turner Estate. Of course. Yeah, of course. So, uh, but they were the main ones that uh, started that rebirth in the Yarra Valley. Yes. So um, as far as... So you were, uh, did you go to a couple of different places to kind of get... No, sample material. I only went to to Yeringberg because I just wanted to use one vine sure. or in one row sure. and and just take uh, that um, take all the the root samples from that one vine and then work back from from there. Yeah, and so um, Gil gave me some of his Shiraz vines, which he later pulled out oh. uh, to uh, to to do some work on. Oh, okay. Um, so, you know, you followed a path that ended up in kind of viticulture? Well, um, I, I was keen to, to get into viticulture and um, after I graduated, um, which would have been uh, early uh, February, I, I just drove around to the uh, some of the wineries in the Yarra Valley asking if there was any work. Yeah. And so, um, and uh, the day that I turned up at St Hubert's, uh, the vineyard manager just handed his re- resignation in that day. There you go. So it was good timing on my part. Fortuitous. Yes. So um, what were the, the early experiences like, you know, working out in the vineyard and actually sort of seeing, uh, you know, a full year of, um, of the changes in the vine and, and that kind of thing? Well, it was, um, I was mainly working out in the vineyard and so it was uh, a pretty big, uh, introduction into to viticulture in a, a very short space of time. Mm-hmm. Um, I was there, I think, uh, helped out with the uh, 81 vintage and then um, then sort of took over the uh, the running of the vineyard. But uh, it was quite a daunting task when you've got 40 acres of vines uh, post-vintage to start pruning and mm. uh, not having done that sort of work before. So sure. It was um, it was a challenge. Was you, so I would think that you know your knowledge was obviously very theoretical. So yeah, it yes. probably had to do a lot of learning by doing. And and were you talking? Did you sort of get advice from some of the other sort of people out in the vines? Well, um, there was a lot of advice that I got through the old Department of Agriculture. They had quite a good uh, extensive uh, viticultural extension program at that stage. Um, at the time, uh, Alex White, Martin Grinsberg and David Lance were the winemakers at St Hubert, so I got gained a lot of knowledge from, from those guys mm-hmm. while I was working there. Mm-hmm. And then um, I think in uh, the second year of my, my work there, I, I enrolled in uh, 
the wine sale. Initially, it was the viticultural course at uh, Charles Sturt University or the old Bogger uh, Institute before yeah. that. Yeah. So that's how it uh, got me going in that area. With the idea of doing it by correspondence or like, like yes. by distance? Yes, I was okay. doing it by correspondence. Sure. Um, and so it was uh, quite, quite interesting back then. It was obviously long before the internet. <laughs> Uh, yes, it was uh, it was more challenging, and um, the Australia Post uh, was uh, the main uh, method of uh, trend, moving uh, notes, etc. Mm-hmm. So uh, very different to to today. Mm. So, um, how long did you end up working at St Hubert's? I was only there at St Hubert's for uh, about two years, mm-hmm. and um, it was through one of the guys that I met up at. Wagga that um, said to me, Mario, if you ever want to learn about winemaking, this is the place, uh, meaning Mount Mary. Mm. And so uh, I happened to apply for his position and uh, was lucky enough to get the job. So mm. I uh, I started off there in uh, 1983, mm-hmm. which wasn't a great uh, year. And with the bushfires that we had, uh, Ash Wednesday, uh, I can remember working out in the vineyard uh, and um, there was ash falling into the vineyard. And mm-hmm. so um, we didn't really know a lot about smoky taint at those taints, <laughs> as, at those stages. So uh, it was one of those things that we found out about. But it, I guess it would have been pretty amazing um, as far as learning about winemaking at, at an environment like Mount Mary where you're actually taking, you know, from start to finish. You know, it's more of a that vineyard style of thing rather than, okay, here's your fruit, now make your wine. Oh, very much so. So uh, it was um, it was a great learning experience, and uh, I gained a, a lot of knowledge uh, from from working uh, for John in those early years. Yeah. Um, how long did you end up spending at Mount Mary? Well, I had two stints at Mount Mary because I was there from '83 till '86, mm-hmm. and then uh, I left in '86. Did two vintages at uh, Long Gully, out near Hillsville, yep. where I set up the winery there, and then um, in '89 I returned back to to Mount Mary. Mm-hmm. So um, that was. Um, where I took over more the day-to-day running of the, uh, the winery uh, for John mm. uh, at that stage. So did 10 vintages there. Did you get the opportunity to sort of visit other wine regions outside of the Yarra Valley and kind of learn a little bit about, um, you know, work, you know, other climates and perhaps other varieties as well? Um, I did uh, visit and have a lot of visits to, to other wine regions, Um but um, I think the one of the main uh, experiences was when I did the uh, the '94 vintage in Burgundy. Okay. Uh, but uh, how, I was, how did you get that opportunity? Um, I'd met uh, Nicola Potel, uh, whose father ran Domaine de la Pustor, mm-hmm. and so I've been there. Yeah. So yeah, great, great place. Yeah. And um, uh, great. Great domain as Very well. Very cool setup. Yes, yes. But uh, uh, Gerard passed away in 96, mm-hmm. I, I think, and so uh, I haven't been back there since. I think I got bought by, from memory, I was there in 2010, I, it got bought by, um, I think, an engineer, and he kind of introduced a little bit of, of his sort of background as an engineer in the cellars as far as the, the winemaking, which, was, which I thought was quite interesting. Yeah, I haven't. Um, yes, I'll, I'll have to take your word for it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I. Um, but uh, Gerard, how, how, how was the '96 vintage in Burgundy? Um, it was '94. Sorry, '94. '94 wasn't a great year, but I, I 
I'd learned a lot from from poor years because it had been fantastic up until September. It was quite dry, just good ripening conditions, and then it started raining in September. Mm. And so my recollections of uh, of Burgundy was uh, was um, seeing an Australian in shorts when it's only ten or eleven degrees, and I quickly learnt to buy uh, a pair of jeans so that I could <laughs> overcome that. Sure, but um, it was mainly spent on the sorting table. Okay, and uh, and removing any botrytis on, on fruit that you might see. Sounds a bit like the 2014 vintage. Uh, possibly, yes, yes. So, um, but it was just seeing and also just seeing the the amount of stalks that they might incorporate. Mm. But, you know, with the ripeness of the fruit uh, and um, stalks is decreased. But they mainly did that with their monopole vineyards that I noticed. Sure. And it was stalks that, whether it was... Um, um, uh, Clos de la Pustor, mm-hmm. uh, and then also the um, the um, uh, the Soissons Ouvre, mm-hmm. that the other monopole, mm-hmm. and there were stalks introduced in the better year. In the better years, you could, if the the stalks were ripe, they they would introduce up to fifteen percent of stalks in those uh, under those circumstances. Yeah, the fruit, the, the ripeness would have been yes. there to sort of yes. offset the the yes. increase in stalks. I would think. Yes, exactly. So was that something that you kind of came back and started to sort of think about introducing into like Mount Mary or were you still at Mount Mary at that point? Uh, Yes, I was still at Mount Mary. Um, There were things that we'd uh, mainly had cultured yeast that we're using at Mount Mary and um, it was interesting working with uh, natural ferments Mm. and so from that point of view I I quite enjoyed that and... um, even though we still use the, the cultivated yeast, we used much lower uh, uh, rates of uh, inoculation. Sure. And so to slowly mimic that um, that natural fermentation process. Mm. And so there's some of the things that uh, that we had uh, did use, but uh, techniques that we that were used. But I also um, saw that it was really important to get oxygen into those ferments uh, at an early stage. What 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 do you think is the benefit of of that? Well, it t- tends to build up the uh, yeast cell wall, and so it uh, it helps in that process and uh, makes it much more. Well, it makes the yeast stronger, so that it can cope with those anaerobic conditions further down uh, the fermentation pathway. Okay. And I'd also seen that in in Italy, um, but more so in two thousand and three that uh, I did notice that. So you at some point. Did you, had you travelled to Italy before that? Yes, I'd um, uh, before I went to Burgundy, I was uh, in Italy because I, I've got a lot of uh, my grandparent. Oh, uh, Ninety three, my grandmother was still uh, still alive, mm-hmm. and so uh, I stayed with my grandmother. But then travelled to to Friuli and uh, Tuscany and. Uh, and uh, Piemonte or mm. Piedmont uh, mm-hmm. on those uh, on those visits visiting so, wineries. Yes, yes. Um, How was your Italian? Um, it's pretty good. It's uh, well. I, I spent when I was twenty one. I spent um, uh, twelve months over there. So, oh, okay. Um, uh, coming from Australia, I mainly spoke the dialect or the local dialect. Sure. And you tend to bastardise certain words uh, in 
that are English words and make them sound like Italian words. That's what I heard. And, and so um, it was a good experience that taught me to speak uh, proper Italian. And, uh, <laughs> so that helped. And so, yes, uh, yeah, I can get by. And what were your impressions uh, visiting wineries in Italy? Um, I really liked the uh, the different varieties that you uh, could uh, Italian varieties uh, in Friuli. Uh, you've got a lot of Merlot and Cabernet Franc that's grown in that area. Sure. Whereas uh, the whites. Um, Apart from the international varieties like Sauvignon Blanc and Chardonnay, then you've got lesser varieties of Pinot Bianco and then more Italian varieties, uh, Friulano, uh, Piccolit, uh, Malvasia di Istria. Uh, and so they were, were very different uh, to me, very different texturally. Mm. Um, and then you go down to Tuscany and you, you've got the home of Sangiovese. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, they're sort of quite large berried varieties, but um, I think uh, at that time you could see that they were starting to do uh, some work into uh, minim- uh, reducing the cropping levels of those varieties uh, and, and working in, in that sort of uh, way to, to do it. And I was lucky enough to meet uh, Paolo De Marchi on, on one of those uh, visits, and so... Uh, I had a, a great introduction to to some of the uh, Chianti's and Chianti Classico and his Ceparello at that stage. Yeah, it's an amazing estate. Oh, it's like a- the just just the buildings on that on that site. I just I, I couldn't have believe it. I was like, wow, I've never seen anything like this before. No, it was. Um, I think uh, in '94, fantastic to visit there and just to watch. Because I, I did vintage in two thousand and three with Paolo, and, really, okay, and, and so I saw the old winery, and in two thousand and three saw the new winery. Yes, and so that was fantastic. Two thousand three would have been a challenging vintage. It was um, because I only had a small amount of time. Uh, I'd missed the bulk of the Sangiovese in Tuscany, but I went uh, to. It would, have, it would have ripened very early. It was very early. Uh, and you could see the difference and understand uh, by limiting the amount of fruit that uh, was produced, it came off very quickly. Uh, the cropping levels were very low, mm-hmm. uh, and so from that point of view, it ripened very quickly. Whereas the more traditional uh, uh, grape growers, you could see that they they were still they still had a lot of fruit on, mm-hmm. and and so you could see how um, uh, the if you manage the, the the cropping level of those vines, yes, they will ripen earlier, but you get then intensity and richness in in those wines. Mm-hmm. And that was a, a good experience for me uh, when I did see that as well. So in terms of traveling you know, into different regions in Italy and then spending a bit of time in France, did you kind of um, think a lot about, okay, I've learned you know, bits and pieces here. I've kind of seen a different um, terroir or terreno that um, mm. each place has. Mm. This is how I think we can apply this kind of knowledge and understanding in Australia and sort of thinking about, okay, even in Victoria we have different regions and, and perhaps there are, you know, there are ways that we can improve. Oh, yes, uh, undoubtedly um, that's what it taught me. And, look, I've used a, a general rule that uh, reds like clay soils 
and uh, whites, it's good to have a bit of rock in, in the vineyard so you get that minerality coming through. Mm -hmm. And they're just two very general uh, rules that uh, that I've looked at. Mm -hmm. um, in Tuscany, you've got the galestro, which is a, is a, a rock that breaks down and... and uh, but there's also that clay component, which is is very important mm -hmm. uh, there as well. In Friuli, depending on the region, uh, you've got um, the ponca. Ponca, exactly. Um, in Collio. In Collio, and but um, when you're also down uh, near um, where Schiopetto is, you, you've got uh, their old uh, alluvial um, glacial beds, and so you've got this rock mixed in with the soil. Mm -hmm. And they're general things that I've uh, taken back with me. And and it's also, um, I think, when you, you look at sites, um, you look at it from the point of view, you look at what vegetation's growing there and how it's growing. And I think that that's always a good indication of... Uh, what sort of plants can grow there. And so maybe that's going back to my agricultural science days because uh, I was always looking on the ground mainly because I had to make a grass collection. And mm -hmm. so you're always observing uh, those sort of different terrains and, um, and small climate changes that you might see. Do you ascribe to the, the benefits of biodiversity? Oh, yes. I think biodiversity is, uh, is really important, um, uh, admittedly, in viticulture, you're just working with a, a monoculture, basically. Mm. But um, you've also got what uh, grasses and, and, and weeds are growing there. And they're also good indications of, uh, of what is important uh, to, to support that natural flora mm -hmm. and, uh, that, that, that might be present there as well. Mm. So you talked about um, helping establish Long Gully in the Yarra Valley. Did you have any other experience as far as you know helping establish other other sites or other you know wineries? Or well, like that? Uh, Long Gully was mainly planted by the time I uh, arrived there, and so I helped with uh, setting up the winery. Uh, I'm, I was always quite keen to try different uh, different varieties, and I think Mary opened up my uh, opened me up to, to seeing different varieties. Uh, uh, when I worked at Mount Mary, there was Merlot, Malbec, uh, Petit Verdot, uh, Cabernet Franc. Uh, and so these were, you know, if you look at it in the uh, early mid-80s, the, there was very few of those varieties grown uh, around that, uh, at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Uh, it was mainly Riesling and, um, and Shiraz that were, the predominant uh, varieties in the Australian um, uh, viticultural industry. Mm -hmm. How things have changed. They have indeed, <laughs> which is great. It gives uh, the drinking public that diversity and, and different styles yeah. to, to actually try, which is, which is fantastic. So when did you sort of start to think about kind of, as it were, putting down your own roots and possibly planting a vineyard for yourself and thinking about that kind of future? Well, I think uh, that uh, experience in 94 got me uh, thinking about doing something for myself. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've always enjoyed Sangiovese. And um, having tasted a lot of Ceparellos, uh, I probably saw the, the advantage of 
of uh, growing uh, Sangiovese and uh, having spoken to Paolo at length about it and uh, uh, explaining a, a few of the um, characteristics of the variety and uh, and trying to understand it. Uh, that's when I first started looking um, around, uh, mainly around Victoria, because uh, I just thought I'd love to, uh, somewhere fairly close to Melbourne, mm -hmm. I thought, um, and looking at climatically, um, Yarra Valley was probably a little bit too cold in those times uh, <laughs> for it um, because it it does need an extended and it uh, period of ripening because it is a naturally uh, high acid variety and so uh, you need that extra period in in autumn without the rains to to get the uh, the fruit ripe mm. and so um, I think I think the valley floor these days would be okay oh, for Sangiovese. I, I agree. I agree. With climate with climate change. Yes. Oh, I think that I've noticed um, coming back to the valley that uh, that it has changed quite uh, quite a deal. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I can remember my experiences through the eighties and nineties that um, um, Pinot used to be harvested in in March and towards the end of March, whereas now it's mid February. Sure. At, you know. Most of the time. Mm. So um, I remember when I was working at Shandon, winemakers talking about, oh man, remember the, the good old days where you'd be really excited to actually be finished before Easter. Now and and then then it was just like <laughs> yeah, we're well and truly finished before Easter. <laughs> oh my word! It uh, Easter's uh, and if it's a late Easter, we've usually got a fair amount of the uh, the wines into wood as well. Sure. So uh, yeah, it's it's one of those things that um, that. We have noticed the effect of climate change. So, tell me about the site that you ended up choosing to uh, to plant some Sangiovese. I look. I, I when I started looking, I started looking north of the uh, north of the divide, mm -hmm. and so I went to three areas which I thought would probably be suitable: uh, Bendigo, mm -hmm. uh, Heathcote, and Nagambi around there. Mm -hmm. um, Bendigo, I thought, was probably a little bit too cool okay. at that time. And I sort of looked at Heathcote um, uh, as being better areas uh, for for those varieties at that, at that time. Mm -hmm. And um, in 99, we bought a property at Heathcote. So we settled on Heathcote. I really liked the, the structure and the character that you were getting in those Cambrian soils. Mm. And so um, we bought a property and started um, a big adventure. And you didn't just plant Sangiovese? No, I, I planted um, I planted Sangiovese, Nebbiolo, uh, Shiraz, a little bit of Viognier. I've also put in some Rifosco del Peduncolo Rosso, um, a little bit of Barbera, just to just see how it uh, how it would go. And since then, I've put in Canaiolo Nero, and um, I'm just trying to think of the other variety, uh, a little bit of Colorino okay. as well. Oh, so classic, yeah. Chianti yes, yes, yeah, exactly. Blending yes, yes, very uh, much so. So, how long were you kind of? playing around with things and eventually, you know, after a few years you got sort of fruit to actually make some wine from and when, when did you kind of start to think, oh, this wine, I think we could actually sort of bottle it and start selling this? 
Well, um, we planted the vineyard in 2000, so um, which is uh, year zero, so to speak. And, <laughs> and so it makes it... Good uh, place to start. It makes it quite handy just to remember the age of the vines. Yeah. Um, and then uh, we didn't get a crop until uh, 2004 was our first vintage. Okay. And, um, after uh, learning experiences of, of being a grape grower of... Um, problems that you might have uh, in trying to establish a vineyard. But uh, all through the 2000s, um, there was, we went into that sort of 10 years of drought period. So mm. it was quite challenging to get mm. these vines up and running. But um, Shiraz seems to like that heat. And so it was uh, quite comfortable in, in uh, providing good quality fruit from, from that vineyard. I, all through, um, all my experiences at Mount Mary, I've learnt that uh, the use of different clones and also the use of different varieties in, in a wine is is really important. Mm. And so uh, with Sangiovese, I think I've got about 10 or 12 clones of Sangiovese. Um, and uh, more so the newer clones that were brought into the country. So I've got a whole mixture of, uh, of clients that I use and also the same with Nebbiolo I've probably got haven't got quite as many I've only got about 10 of those but mm -hmm. um, yeah it's just seeing the differences uh, that might occur and I think I've got about four or five clients of Shiraz and two clients of Viognier as well. So from that Heathkit vineyard uh, you're now making is it four wines? Uh, yes. Well, three wines are no, no, no. You're right. Four wines, um, because I make a Syrah, Shiraz Viognier, Sangiovese, Nebbiolo, and a Viognier. Uh -huh. From that, um, the the other wine that comes from the Heathcote region is the Rosé. Okay. I buy Sangiovese in for for that, and there's also a little bit of bleed off from the uh, Nebbiolo that I blend okay. back with it. And then, and you eventually added a couple of other wines to yes. the range from there, but but they're not from Heathcote, are they? No, no, they're from the Alpine Valleys uh, up near at Port Punkett, near Bright. In, okay, uh, okay. So, um, so reasonably high up and away from the coast, and so yes, cool, very yes, cool nights. Yes, yes, cool nights. Um, the days can get quite warm uh, as well. Um, I had a friend of mine that had the property up there and um, he had a vineyard when he was looking at purchasing it. And um, he, uh, after a couple of years, he wanted to plant some white varieties and he asked me what to plant. And uh, I said, well, try Prosecco mm -hmm. for a start. Mm -hmm. And then I rattled off Pinot Bianco, Malvasia di Istia, Piccolit and Tocai Friolano. And... Uh, he sort of looked at me as though oh, I've never heard of these varieties. What are they, Mario? So uh, I explained uh, to Neil what these varieties were and um, and how important they were to you. Yes, coming yes, from Friuli. Yes, yes, yes. and so um, that uh, he was uh, game enough to plant them, and uh, I've been making wine from them uh, the last since two thousand eleven, and um, and Two are there are now, there now two different prosecco wines. So so you make the there's a, a white yes which is like a Friulian blend yes of all those varieties yes and then there was the prosecco. But I think you've been toying with something a little bit more recently that's sort of possibly 
caused up a, a, you know, a little bit of uh, fuss on Twitter in, over in, in Italy. Uh, I think even the name Prosecco in Italy is uh, is something that will cause a lot of fuss. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> but I, I've also left uh, because most of the wine, well, all of the wine this year was bottle fermented. Sure. I've left about 20 dozen on, on Lees. Uh-huh. And um, uh, in Italy it's called Col Fondo, which yes. means with uh, the Lees, basically. Yes. And so I've just left it like that and uh, and seen how um, the reception to it would be. Well, I, I think I tried one of the first ones, didn't I? Yes, yeah, and, I think uh, you and did. I, and I found it really interesting because mm. the texture of the wine is quite different, you know, when you still have that Lees in the bottle. And I, I actually found it to be more mineral in that way because yes. you, you're yes. picking up more of the that kind of natural yeast leaves build up from you know from the wine itself rather than rather than having it removed and having a sort of a natural filtration of that kind of element mm. um when you're leaving it in for me it kind of has that mineral texture to it i, I think uh yeast does have that texture to it and sure. um it's been a while since I've tasted one of those bottles, so maybe <laughs> then there's the right opportunity. Well, to... now the, the sun's come back out yeah, and it's a bit warmer. Exactly, exactly. But I um, I found that um, uh, Prosecco can be quite an austere variety and uh, and sugar's always used to, to give it a bit more body. Mm-hmm. Um, I've added a very small portion of uh, Pinot Bianco to it just to give it a bit more texture to it as well. So. Okay. Bit of weight, yes, and just not too much, but it just helps to fill out the mid palate and mm-hmm. give it a bit of body, so to speak. Um, but you're also involved with a, another project back in the Yarra Valley. Yes, yes, I've uh, I'm now working for a Chinese company um, called Sunshine Creek, mm-hmm. and um, I'm chief winemaker for all their uh, ventures in in Australia. We've got a 55 acre vineyard where. We um, we use the fruit off that to, to put into an estate range and uh, I buy a little bit of fruit um, in the Heathcote region to make a, a, an estate Shiraz. And um, yes, yeah, so I'm making four wines for them and then I'm sort of uh, responsible for acquiring other grapes to, to make a, a cheaper uh, price wine for them as well. Is that just going into the Chinese market though? Yes, it all goes just about. There's a small uh, percentage which is kept for the Australian market, but the bulk of it does go over to China. And it just sort of shows you the you know what's happening in the Chinese market that there's some maturity and investment, I guess, from China in more wine, whether it's within China because obviously they're making heaps of their own wine now, but also you know overseas. I know they're buying up you know estates and and, and vineyards in uh, in Europe as well. Yes, uh, mainly in Bordeaux. I, I don't. Uh... The Burgundians are all paranoid. They're paranoid that the Chinese are going to start buying all the estates in, in Burgundy. I, I I can understand that, but uh, I think it's much easier in Bordeaux because they know they can see the vineyard. And for the Chinese to understand that you only might get two or three rows of certain vineyards in Burgundy, it's it's quite a different concept to to, to grasp. I, so, I, I my from you know stories that I've heard from uh, estates in in France, particular. Uh, particularly in Burgundy, um, you know, Chinese customers coming and tasting something and going, okay, I want a container of that. And it's like, I don't make, like my total production isn't even a container. What are you talking about? Um, that's um, That was my first experience with the Chinese because um, 
admittedly, if you have a sale of a pallet of wine, you, you think, oh, this is fantastic. But when they start talking about containers, it's it's a totally different concept. Mm. Uh, and so um, it's taken me a little bit of time to, to adapt to that <laughs> <laughs> sort of process. But um, you know, I, I highly recommend people uh, get their hands on some of the Vinia Marson wines, uh, you know, because I remember back when I was working at King Godfrey as a buyer and I got introduced to the Vinia Marson wines by, of course, yourself. Uh, I was really quite um, blown away with um, what I considered to be you know, a more authentic expression of Italian varieties than, than a lot that I'd seen at that point. And, and particularly having, you know, since then, spent you know quite a bit of time traveling around Italy and tasting a lot more Italian wines you know I keep kind of referring back to what I think is the great potential particularly for Sangiovese in Australia and so um, I you know I definitely would suggest tracking the Vinia Marsan wines down and, and cracking up in a bottle. Thanks James I, I think that some of those varieties are well suited to to our climate yes. and um, uh, I've worked with Sangiovese, but uh, there's a lot of other people that are working with Nero de Avola, Alianico, and so the, there's a whole range of different varieties coming out of Italy that uh, are so adaptable problem, uh, to our climate. So, mm. um, and I think, and, and, and also, you know, quite suitable to the Australian palate. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And, and it also gives people that diversity to try different things. Mm. Um, so that's great. Well, thank you very much for uh, joining me today, Mario. Um, and obviously, I appreciate your time. Uh, tell me, uh, do you know the uh, what, what's the website for uh, Vinia Marson and what are some of your social media kind of accounts where people can actually follow everything that you're doing? Uh, Vineamarson.com yes, is, uh, is, the website. is the website. And, um, and that's got the contact details. Exactly. And um, food, uh, Twitter, Instagram is yes. at... Vinaya Marson. Yes, at Vinaya Marson. Fantastic. So uh, any any of those sites, you'll be able to um, have the opportunity of trying the Vinaya Marson wines. And Melbourne trade customers get in touch with our good friend Nazarino from uh, from Vinosita. Exactly, with the the art on the, on the front of his. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the three league uh, three wheeled uh, transport vehicle. Yes. Well, thank you, Mario, um, and I look forward to having some more Venemars on very soon. Thank you, James. As always, guys, thank you very much for listening to another episode of The Vincast. I have been James Scarsbrook, otherwise known as The Intrepid Wino. And, of course, you can follow me on social media on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Intrepid Wino. And you can also follow the podcast on Twitter at The Vincast. If you go to facebook.com forward slash Intrepid Wino, you'll find my Facebook page. And please do go to the Intrepid Wino channel, one word, on YouTube and subscribe and watch some of the Let's Taste videos as well as some other videos that I'm going to be putting up very soon. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, uh, Stitcher, Player FM, and that way you'll be able to get the new episode as soon as it becomes available and listen to it on your uh, portable device of choice. Of course, come to uh, intrepidwino.com for all of the uh, podcast episodes, lots of different writings, all the YouTube videos, and all the different ways you can get in contact with me uh, because I love to get some feedback. So uh, send me an email, thevincast at gmail.com. Maybe if you'd like to be on the podcast, let me know uh, and uh, hope to uh, bump into you soon. Uh, I've got some great episodes coming up, but until next time, bye.